2 Timothy chapter 3 and we are going to read from verse 14 to verse 17. Although our focus this evening is going to be on verse 16 and 17. So 2 Timothy chapter 3 verse 14 to 17. But as for you, continue in what you have learned and have become convinced of. Because you know those from whom you learned it. And how from infancy you have known the holy scriptures, which are able to make you wise for salvation through faith in Christ Jesus. All scripture is God-breathed and is useful for teaching, rebuking, correcting and training in righteousness. So that the servant of God may be thoroughly equipped for every good work. Well, tonight I want to start by telling you a true story. It is the story of a man who was in very, very serious trouble. This man was public enemy number one, and he was on trial in court for a crime that he didn't commit. Has to be said, this man had the odds firmly stacked against him. He wasn't getting a fair trial, and the prosecution lawyers were absolutely vicious in how they questioned him and how they attacked him. This man was almost certainly going to be found guilty. And there was every possibility that after he was found guilty, he would lose his life. And yet, there was light at the end of the tunnel. There was hope for this man because the same prosecution who had been attacking him and who had been giving him such a battering the whole way through the trial approached him with a very generous deal. And here's the deal. All he has to do is admit that he is wrong, admit that he is guilty, and if he does that, they're going to leave him be and they're going to let him get his life back on track. And so the prosecution give this man 24 hours to think through the deal. 24 hours to decide whether he should take it or he should leave it. 24 hours to decide whether he should admit that he's guilty, even though he's done nothing wrong, or whether he should stick his guns and potentially lose his life. Must have been a really agonising 24 hours. And what makes it even worse is that not only was this man's life on the line, but there was something even more important that was at stake. There was a principle. See, this man was on trial because he had been exposing corruption. And the authorities did not like that one bit. And so if this man was to take this deal, if he was to say that he was wrong, if he was to plead guilty... Well, do you see what he would be saying? He'd be saying, actually, everything's fine after all. You don't need to worry about the corruption that I have pointed out. And so the hours go by. The clock is ticking. This man has to make up his mind. Will I stand up for what is right? Or will I do whatever it takes to live another day? And so this man, after his 24 hours is up, he takes to the stand, everybody sitting there, waiting with bated breath 
to hear what he's going to say. And he says this. I cannot and I will not recant anything. It is neither safe nor right to go against conscience. Here I stand. I can do no other. And I wonder where there are gasps in the room. Here is this man. He's been offered this sweet deal and he has effectively signed his own death warrant. And yet, looking back, not only did those words sign his own death warrant, although he did escape because his friends came to his rescue, not only did they do that, they also raised a battle cry. A battle cry in the war against tyranny and abuse and corruption. Here I stand. I can do no other. Some of you may have guessed the man that I'm talking about is Martin Luther. The year was 1521 and the trial was taking place in a small town in Germany. Martin Luther was in trouble because he had been exposing corruption in the church. He had shown that the leaders of the church were more interested in money than they were in truth. He had shown that they were leading people away from what the Bible said about the true way of salvation. And so Martin Luther called for debate and for reform. Problem is, the leaders of the church were having none of it. And so they came to this trial ready for a fight. And so the people crammed into that hot, packed room to hear what was said, and they heard all of the big guns firing against Martin Luther. And so the prosecutors, they would say, Mr. Luther, did you know that Pope so-and-so says this? And Cardinal so-and-so says that. Are you really telling us that you are more qualified than men like these? What do you say to something like that? How do you argue with a case like that? Either you have to be incredibly self-confident or, like Martin Luther, you have to appeal to someone who has even more authority than a pope or a cardinal. So here's what Luther did. First of all, he pointed out that if you look back over history, popes, different popes and different cardinals had contradicted themselves. But then he told the court that there is only one thing that could convince him to give up. And that one thing is the word of God. And so he said... Unless I am convinced by the testimony of the scriptures, I am bound by the scriptures I have quoted. And my conscience is captive to the word of God. I cannot and I will not recant anything. And then those famous words that I've already read, here I stand, I can do no other. Well, the question I want to ask tonight is whenever Martin Luther says that, here I stand, I can do no other. Where is here? Where did Martin Luther stand? Where is the foundation? 
which isn't going to crumble whenever the big guns go on the attack. Whose is the voice who is going to silence those who are in it for themselves? Well, the answer to that question is the word of God, the Bible. And then, after we've looked at that question, I want to ask you this evening, can you say, along with Martin Luther, here I stand? Do you have the same foundation and the same certainty? Because you can do. Because we're talking about God's word. As Mark says, we're looking at three rediscovered treasures. And there are actually five rediscovered treasures, but we're only going to be spending three nights looking at them. These are five things that have always been true. They've never stopped being true, but a bit like Mark's study, they've been buried under teaching that wasn't true and wasn't helpful. Five treasures that have been refound, rediscovered. Five truths that should be precious to every single person who hears them. Tonight we're looking at scripture alone. There's also grace alone, faith alone, Christ alone, and to the glory of God alone. But tonight we begin with scripture alone. And there's a reason why we start with this rather than any of the others. And the reason is this is the foundation. If you take away this one, if you take away scripture alone, well then the other four Well, they simply crumble like a house of cards. So the question is, what do I mean when I say scripture alone? Maybe some of you wondered that before you came here this evening. Maybe I should start by saying what I don't mean when I say scripture alone. I don't mean that there is only one book that is worth reading. And I also don't mean that there is only one place that it's worth learning from. What I do mean is that the Bible, and only the Bible, is the final authority for the church. Because the Bible is the word of King Jesus. And because it is the word of King Jesus, it is final. And it needs to be obeyed. And we're going to see that as we look at this passage, which we read. It's probably the most famous passage where the Bible speaks about itself. And that is 2 Timothy chapter 3 and verse 16 and 17. And so what I want to do this evening is to take these two words of this great slogan, Scripture and alone. And I want to see what this passage tells us about those two words. So first of all, Scripture. Scripture. I'd like you to notice verse 16. All scripture is God-breathed. All scripture is God-breathed. In other words, the Bible is completely unique. Because this book is the word of God himself. Now, yes, it's true that different parts of the Bible have different human authors... Yes, it is true that different parts of the Bible are written in different styles. But behind all of it, God made absolutely 100% certain that every single word that was written was exactly what he wanted to be written. And so, for example, in another passage, 
It's not on your sheet this evening, but 2 Peter chapter 1, God tells us that men spoke from God as they were carried along by the Holy Spirit. It's God's word. And in this verse that we're looking at this evening, 2 Timothy 3 verse 16, God tells us that the Bible has been breathed out by God. What does he mean by that? Well, sometimes people will use the word inspired to describe the Bible. And that's a good word. But there is a problem with that word. And the problem is sometimes we can use the word inspired in a rather fuzzy way. Think, for example, of a movie that's maybe been inspired by real events. Or a musician who has been inspired by another musician who they grew up listening to. That's not actually what God's saying here. God's saying something different. If anything, he is saying the Bible is expired. I'm going to explain what I mean by that. I'll explain by telling you a story about whenever I was in primary school. Uh, I suppose whenever I was in primary school, I always fancied myself as a bit of a rebel. Someone who would rebel against authority and whenever I was younger I always fancied myself as being a bit like some of the older kids and so if ever there was to be a cold winter morning I would rebel in the sort of pathetic way that only a very young child at primary school can do and so I and my friends we would go to the shop and we would buy don't know if you've seen them but they're they're called candy sticks and they're little white types of sweet They're around about the size and the shape of a cigarette. And they came in a little box that was designed to look just like a cigarette packet. And so I and my other friends, you know, we would stand there and we would pretend to puff these cigarettes. And of course, it's a cold morning. And so every time we breathe out, you would see this mist coming out of our mouths. Well, that mist, that cloud is simply what happens whenever you breathe out. And what God is telling us here in 2 Timothy is that the Bible is what happens whenever God breathes out. The words that we have here are the very breath of God. And whenever we recognize that, well, actually an awful lot of things fall into place. What is God like? God's perfect. God cannot tell a lie. God cannot get something wrong. And if the Bible is the very breath of God, well then what can we say about the Bible? Well, the Bible must be perfect. The Bible cannot lie. The Bible cannot get it wrong because it is breathed out by God. And that then changes how we read the Bible. My wife Ruth will be able to testify to the fact that I have got an awful lot of books at home. Uh, Some of those books have been written by experts, people who have spent years and years doing their research. And yet, any time you read one of those books, you have to read it with a pinch of salt. You have to say to yourself, well, what I'm reading here is probably true, but it might not be. 
But you don't have to do that with the Bible. Because it's breathed out by God. And God is perfect. Isn't it so kind that God has not left us to guess? Isn't it so kind that God has not left us to work things out for ourselves? Isn't it so kind that instead of doing that, God has given us his perfect, reliable, breathed out word? Isn't that something that is worth rediscovering? Is it any wonder that all those years ago, Martin Luther looked at the shifting foundations that were all around him? Is it any wonder that he looked at the contradictions and the mistakes that had been made by different popes and different bishops? Is it any wonder that having seen that, he said, here I stand, I can do no other. So we've seen the first word of this great slogan, scripture. But now we want to think about the second word, alone. Alone. And to do that, we want to look once again at verse 16 of 2 Timothy 3. And we want to notice what God says here about his perfect breathed out word. He tells us it is useful for teaching for rebuking, for correcting, and for training in righteousness. Now, I don't know about you, but I look at this list and I think, well, surely those are four quite different things. Surely, for those four different things, you need four different approaches. Uh, So, for example, I think of a hospital. And if you are someone who's been sick and you need to be built up once again, well, maybe you go to see a nutritionist. Or if you've got a disease inside you that needs to be fought, well, then you go and see maybe a radiologist. If you have, say, a bone that is broken and hasn't healed properly and needs to be corrected, well, then you go to see an orthopedic surgeon. Or if you've been very sick and you need to be trained once again in how to walk, you go to see a physio. And I suppose that if someone was particularly sick, if they were very seriously ill, they might have all sorts of different members of staff involved. They might have all sorts of different voices and all sorts of different conflicting approaches. But not when it comes to the church. God is telling us here, whatever it is you need, whether you need to be built up or you need to be corrected, whether you need to fight the disease of sin or whether you need to be trained up to walk, whatever you need, there is only one solution and there is only one voice. And it's the word of God. It's everything that we need. God is telling us here, you don't need to visit each department in turn. You don't need to listen to each voice in turn and then weigh up all of the various approaches. He's telling us the Bible is enough. And we see that very clearly in verse 17. He tells us uh, that the Bible is useful for all these things so that the servant of God may be thoroughly equipped for every good work. 
every good work. That's not to say that, for example, other books can't be useful. It's not to say that other people's advice can't be helpful. But what this verse is telling us is that whenever it comes to living as a Christian, you have got everything that you could possibly need in the word of God, in the Bible. Isn't that a wonderful thing? And it's not just true of us as individuals. It's also true, as Martin Luther saw, and as he was at pains to point out, it's true for the church. What does the church need whenever it has problems? What does the church need whenever maybe some of the members aren't really getting along or they're having disagreements? What does the church need whenever uh, its members have grown cold or unenthusiastic about sharing the gospel? How can a church decide how it's to worship or how it's to tell people about Jesus? What's it supposed to do? Well, it doesn't have to do a survey. It doesn't have to listen to all of the different points of view. All it has to do is listen to the word of God. And really, whenever you think about it, why would we do anything else? Why would we, would we say, well, that's okay, that's God's opinion, that's what he has to say on the matter, but I wonder what other people have to say. That is why it is God's word alone. Because if it's God's word plus somebody else's word, well, what are we doing? We are ignoring the authority of God himself. And really, that gets to the very heart of Martin Luther's dispute with the Roman Catholic Church. If you were to go back in time, if you were to say to these bishops or say to the Pope, I believe that the Bible is God's word and I believe that it is perfect, I wonder would they shrug their shoulders and say, well, so do we. That's nothing new. Whereas the problem that they had wasn't the word scripture, it was the word alone. These leaders of the church, they would say, well, yes, the Bible says that, but wonder what did Pope so-and-so say? What did saint so-and-so say? What did that saint say? And suddenly, the clear, perfect word of God was drowned out by the babble of all sorts of competing voices. That is why the word alone matters. It is because of the word alone that Martin Luther could be in no doubt whatsoever about the one way of being reconciled to the God who hates sin. It is because of that word alone that he could be certain about the message of the gospel. It is because of that word alone that there were no ifs, no buts and no maybes. Martin Luther was standing on a firm foundation. And the question is, are you standing with him? Whenever you're faced with a moral dilemma, 
and the consequences are serious. Where will you stand? Whenever you want to teach your children the difference between right and wrong, where is your foundation going to be? Whenever a loved one gets bad news and you want to provide them with some comfort, where are you going to find the sort of comfort that stays anchored even amidst the storm? Whenever you're at the side of a grave and you're watching a coffin that is being lowered into the ground, what is going to allow you to stay strong? Whenever you're lying in a hospital bed, a doctor stands beside you, he has a grim look on his face, and he tells you, I'm sorry, but we have no treatments left. What is going to allow you to get ready for death? There's only one answer to all of those questions, isn't there? There is only one voice that speaks to all of those issues. And it's the voice of God himself. And that is why Martin Luther said what he did. And that is why it is vital that you do the same. Will you join Martin Luther at this firm foundation? Will you say, along with him, and along with all of God's people, Here I stand. I can do no other.